Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, I invite you to open it up to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Today we're going to be in chapter 3. If you're a guest, we're so glad you're here. Hope you are feeling welcome. We'd love to get to know you better. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, we'd encourage you to grab one from the rack in front of you there and take it home. It's not stealing because I'm telling you to do it. So uh, we're Philida Bible Church. We think the Bible is an amazing, wonderful gift from God. And so we would love everybody to have one and be reading it because it contains his message to us. This morning, we're going to be thinking about the difference between reputation and reality. And to sort of get us thinking about that, I want to tell you a story. Uh, Several years ago, my family and I were down in Southern California vacationing uh, in Karen's hometown of Glendora, and we decided one evening that we would really like some good Mexican food, really wanted some authentic tacos, which there are lots of opportunities to get those down in Southern Cal. Um, But we weren't really sure where to go, so we thought we'd use this website, which allows you to, you know, choose a restaurant based on, you know, unbiased consumer reviews. As people go to the restaurant, then they, you know, write a review and rate it, and so you can use that to figure out where you want to go. So we we discovered on this website that there was this uh, fairly new place right there in Glendora. We thought, well, this is great. This is convenient. And the, the, the reviews were glowing. I mean, this place is great. Okay, so let's go. So we went and we ordered some food and we took it back to the house and we prepared to feast on some really fine Mexican cuisine. Comida Mexicano. <laughs> and then we ate it. And we discovered that this restaurant had a reputation that far exceeded its reality. (laughs) It just wasn't that good. Apparently, all those glowing reviews were written by people who were either employed by the restaurant (laughs) or related to the owners, maybe the owners themselves, because it just wasn't real. It wasn't real, and so we decided, well, that's it. We're not, we're not going back there. <laughs> Actually, we can't go back there, because last time I checked, they'd gone out of business, <laughs> which is not surprising. You know, a, for a restaurant to have a reputation that's far greater than its reality, that's a big problem. What if, you're, what if that's true of a church? What if a church has a reputation that far exceeds its reality? What if if that's true of a person, of someone who professes to be a follower of Jesus? This is exactly the situation that the Lord Jesus is addressing in Revelation chapter 3 as he speaks a message to a church, one of his churches in a town called Sardis. But as we know from reading all of his messages to all of the seven churches here in Revelation, the message is not intended just for Sardis. It's intended for anyone who has ears to hear. That is, anyone who is willing 
to listen, to pay attention to what the Lord Jesus would say to us. When it, comes, when it comes to being a church, when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, we need to be sure we are not underestimating how much is at stake. There are very, this is not just about you know, going out of business and losing some money. There are much, much bigger things at stake. So, Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, let's listen as the Lord of the churches speaks to his churches. He says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God, or some of your translations probably say the sevenfold spirit of God. I think that's correct. I think this is a a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, But you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So I think a good question to ask ourselves in reading this is, am I more concerned with reality or with reputation? What do I actually care more about? Having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ or having the reputation of having a relationship with Jesus. Is it more important to me that I actually know God, that I actually have God in my life, that I actually be right with God, or is it more important to me that people think those things are true of me? It's the difference between reputation and reality. And what Jesus says here to the church in Sardis, helps us understand why we should care a whole lot more about reality than about reputation when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, when it comes to being a band of followers of Jesus known as a church. Why we should care far more about reality than reputation. So here are some reasons that I see in what Jesus says. The first reason we should care more about reality than reputation is because reputation can actually be the exact opposite of reality. The restaurant reviews can be great while the tacos are lousy. 
Reputation can be the opposite of reality. The church in Sardis had a reputation for being alive. How did that happen? Well, at one point, it must have been true. It must have been true that when the good news about Jesus first came to town, the people responded positively. They welcomed the good news, and they they welcomed God's free gift of eternal life in Jesus by receiving His Son, embracing Him by faith, and embracing His purpose for their lives. And then they, they banded together and formed a church in order that they together might worship God in spirit and in truth, that they might uh, learn His Word and obey it, that they might love one another, that they might give themselves to Christ's mission, the mission Jesus has given His churches of sharing the good news with the world and helping people know Him and follow Him. That's what it means to be alive as a church. It means to have a living, actual relationship with God through Christ, yielding more and more, you know, yielding to His Spirit's control of all of our lives, learning to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, learning to love other people as we love ourselves. And the church in Sardis was like that. Well, correction, they used to be like that. Something happened. Something happened. Somehow, they did not pass on a genuine faith to the next generation. Somehow, they got comfortable. Their worship became routine instead of heartfelt. Yeah, yeah, it's Sunday, okay. We go do what we do. But there was no heartfelt devotion and focus on God and and rejoicing in Him and mourning over sin. Um, and, And what Jesus wanted them to do, well, that just became less important to them than doing what they wanted to do, pursuing their own preferences. They didn't pray very much. They didn't give generously. They didn't encourage and challenge one another. Their appetite for God's Word diminished as they filled themselves with the things of the world. And as a result, their vitality, their enthusiasm for Jesus and the things of God just slowly drained away. But they still had their reputation. People still thought they were alive. And Jesus says they're dead. Think of that. That is the exact opposite of their reputation. Everybody thinks we're alive. Jesus says we're dead. Wow. How does that happen? How do you get a reputation that's the exact opposite of what's real? Well, one way it happens in churches, for sure... And we know this because it's happened countless times. 
is when tradition becomes more important to us than mission. And we know this happens and has happened because Jesus himself repeatedly got into conflict with very religious people, uh, the religious elite of the day, over this very issue. Tradition versus mission. They were all about preserving tradition instead of pursuing the mission God had given them. They didn't see a difference, actually. They thought, well, you know, our mission is tradition. They got confused on that point. And these guys, they had a reputation for really loving God. That's what everybody thought about them. That was their reputation. Because they were so careful to keep all of the traditions that had developed over time. For example, in the Law of Moses and the Torah, God commanded His people, the Israelites, to give 10% of their crops as offerings. And that was given to the, the one tribe, the Levites, who didn't own land like the rest of the people, but they served in the temple. They were the, uh, you know, the worship leaders, so to speak. They're the ones who offered the sacrifices, the priests. So everybody's to give 10% of their crops. That was the command. Well, these guys said, hey, we're all about that. Let's make sure we give exactly 10%. In fact, not just our, you know, our wheat and our oats and whatever crops they grew, Let's make sure all those little mustard seeds, all those spices, let's make sure we count all those and give exactly 10% to the Lord. They were so meticulous, so scrupulous to keep every tradition, every detail, every regulation. But here's the important question. Why? Why did they do that? Ordinary people looked at them and said, man, you guys, you must really love God. You must really love God to to be so intense about that. And Jesus comes along and he looks at them and he says, no, you don't love God. What you love is having people think you love God. What you love is impressing people. What you love is being admired as godly by other people. That's what you love. God doesn't really enter into it. God's just a means for getting what you really want, which is not God, but admiration. Jesus warns us, Matthew 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness. Beware of looking all spiritual before other people in order. Here's the motive. In order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father that's in heaven. So when we do what's right, when we do what's good, The question is, do we do those things because we genuinely love God or is it because we want people to think we're a good person? Do we want people to think, oh, he's a good guy. She's a good woman. Do we want the reputation of loving God or do we want the reality of loving God? Because those are two different things. 
<laughs> and Jesus proved it with his own life because he got a very different reputation. He earned a very different reputation than the religious elite. He completely ruined his reputation as far as they were concerned. He said this in Luke 7.34, The Son of Man, he's talking about himself, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. In contrast to John the Baptist, who was very much, you know, no wine, no beer, very little water, you know, abstain, 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 abstain. Jesus came eating and drinking. And you say, you religious guys, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was like calling him a friend of drug dealers and pedophiles. Because Jesus cared more about actually loving God and loving people than he did about his reputation. He didn't come to earth to preserve traditions. He came to seek and to save the lost. Therefore, he connected with lost people, not to engage in their sins, but to call them from their sins to trust in himself. That was his mission, and man, he went after it unyieldingly went after the mission the Father had given him, and it didn't matter what people think. You know, if, if what his mission was, if your tradition got in the way of his mission, he just ran right over it. He didn't care what you thought. So he and the religious elite had opposite reputations, but their reputations were the opposite of reality. So I think the word for me and for you is if our traditions or our personal preferences, the way we prefer things, or if our memories of the good old days and how great it used to be, if our traditions, our preferences, or our memories ever become more compelling to us than what Jesus wants us to be about right now, the mission he's given to us, then it really doesn't matter if we've got a great reputation. Because our reputation will become the opposite of reality. Second reason. The reason it's important that we care more about reality than reputation is reputation is what people think you are. <laughs> reality is what God knows you are. Oh, how I just want to remember this, how I want you to remember this. What God thinks of us is always more important than what people think of us. Always. Because what God thinks of us is always true. It's always accurate. It's always the way things really are. What people think of us, well, that's often not true. That's not real. It's not the way things really are. And we all know this. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So in our world, we think if somebody looks good, they must be good. I don't know if you recognize this picture that's going to come up here. Good-looking guy, by all accounts, handsome, charming, 
Ted Bundy was a very nice-looking guy who was executed for killing at least 30 women and perhaps dozens more. We are easily misled by appearances. God never is. God never is. God looks at the heart. He knows exactly what's going on. So, while we may be able to fool some people about who we really are, we, we can't fool God. You know, people looked at the church in Sardis and said, Man, that church is happening. They are happening. They are alive and well. They are doing great things. And Jesus says, I have not found your works complete, acceptable in the sight of my God. Two different evaluations. Which one matters most? Which one matters most to me? Which one matters most to you? Is it what God thinks of me or what people think of me? I can tell you on the basis of God's word whose evaluation is going to matter the most to you someday. And it won't be what people think. And that brings me to the third reason we should care about this. Because reputation has absolutely zero impact on your ultimate happiness. Zero. No impact whatsoever. Only reality does. So while it may make us feel good today to have people be impressed with us and admire us and, and to have a great reputation with people, it's not going to make the slightest difference in how happy we are forever. And so a great question to ask is, how long do you want to be happy? How long do you want to be happy? Because you're going to live forever. Somewhere. That's why Jesus is trying to get our attention here. Because those who are Christian in name only are in for a serious reality check, and they're not going to like it at all. Jesus says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? I mean, I, I don't know exactly all that that means, but nobody likes to be visited by a thief. Trying to fake it with Jesus doesn't end well. It doesn't end well. But, okay, so here's the good side of this, the good news here. It doesn't have to be that way. We can just decide, hey, reputation doesn't matter. I just need to get real with Jesus. And the outcome of that is so good. So good. It talks here about walking with Jesus in white, okay? And we think, you know, I'm not necessarily into white. I like color. I like whatever. Okay, that's missing the point. You've got to understand this in the context of when it was written and the culture there. You realize this is long before Clorox. This is long before bleach. To have clothing that is pure white, it, that's amazing. That's incredible. And here it's a symbol of something. It's a symbol of absolute being absolutely clean, being absolutely pure in the sight of God. 
blameless, completely acceptable to him. So it talks about that. It talks about um, having your name written in the book of life and it can't be blotted out because it's written like with the ultimate Sharpie, the permanent marker that can't be erased. <laughs> uh, I got a story about our kid drawn all over the walls with a permanent marker, but okay, that's beside the point. But your name, your name in the book of life can't be blotted out. Then it talks about, this is amazing, Jesus confessing your name before his Father and the angels. Can you imagine that? Have you ever been in an assembly, you know, some kind of gathering where your name was announced because you won some award or some recognition? Everybody got to hear that. You know, maybe you you were in the honor roll, got on the honor roll in fifth grade or something, and there was the breakfast, and they called your name, and you know, you loved it. Everybody got to hear your name. And, or if it wasn't you, it was your friend or your brother or your sister or somebody, and you, you wished it had been you. That honor doesn't last. It doesn't last. If you were on the fifth grade honor roll, who cares? <laughs> Nobody cares. When do you put on your resume, fifth grade honor roll? <laughs> Nobody cares. Well, okay, imagine this instead. It's the day of judgment. It's going to happen. It is coming. Jesus promised it would. It's the day of judgment, the most significant day in your entire existence. And Jesus calls your name and says, This one is mine. This one is mine. This one belongs to me. And because he says that, you are ushered into the very presence of God where you will experience eternal joy and glory. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, if we're like Sardis, we've got to wake up. We've got to refuse to be content with just having a reputation. We've got, you know, we, we, we can't settle for having the reputation of having life. We've got to have life, real life. And here's the thing. You can have it if you want it. You can have it if you want it. Jesus tells these people their, their dead condition is not irreversible. Did, did you find that striking when you were reading it? Jesus says, hey, you're dead, wake up. What? Dead people can't wake up. You can't wake up a dead person. No, you can't. I can't. Jesus can. For him, death is never an irreversible obstacle. That's why he can call it sleep. And he's saying, wake up. They can wake up. They can have life if they want it, and so can you. Jesus offers life to you if you will simply admit that you need it and you want it because you know without it, you're dead to God. So if you're here today, and people think you're a Christian... Because, you know, you, you go to church, 
or you grew up going to church, you hang around with Christians, you know some of the lingo, you try to be a good person, but it's not real and you know it. Are you okay with that? Because you don't have to be okay with that. You don't have to be okay with that. Jesus doesn't want you to be okay with that. I, that. This is so important. I mean, that's why he's telling these people they're dead. Okay, He's not insulting them. Think of what he could have done. He could have just said, oh, yep, they're dead. All right. Forget them. Start with another church over here. He doesn't do that. He wants to get their attention. They're not too far gone. And that's why he says, wake up. Wake up! Wake up! Before it's too late, wake up! Don't be content. A good reputation means nothing with God. He doesn't care about your reputation. You might have a horrible reputation. He doesn't care. What does He want? He wants you to trust His Son. Period. Trust his son. Trust, trust his son enough to stake your life on his son and what he did. Trust him enough to put all of your hope in him. Trust him to put all of your confidence in him. Trust him to embrace him as the number one treasure of your life. That's what he wants. Look at verse 3. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it, that is, obey it. Hold on to it and repent. Notice this. They don't need something new. They don't need something new. They don't need to learn a new technique. They don't need to learn, you know, the deeper life method or something. They need to remember what they have already heard, what they as a church have already heard and received. What's that? It's the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. Look back at chapter 1, verse 5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, that's why deads only sleep to him, because he conquered it, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Who frees us from our sins? Jesus. How? By his blood. What does that mean? He died for us. That's what it means. He frees us. We don't free ourselves. So you got to hear this. This is so important. This, you know, when Jesus is calling us to wake up, he's not calling us try harder. Try harder. Be better. Do more. It's not try harder. It's not be better. It's not do more. It's trust him. Trust him instead of you. Trust his efforts, not your efforts. Be right with God on the basis of what he did, not what you can do. Stop trying to earn his favor. You can't. Put your hope in him, what he did for you. He freed us. He's the one who frees us from our sins by his blood. It's not about us, it's relying on him. All these words here about unsoiled garments being dressed spotlessly in white, okay, completely pure, completely clean in God's eyes. Now ask yourself, can you pull that off? 
If so, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. Can you pull that off? Can you actually stand in the presence of God and say, I'm good. You totally should let me into your presence forever. As I have done, I have done it. No. We know. We know there's no way we can pull that off. Well, how then can God ever look at us that way? Spotless, pure, completely acceptable to him? Jesus frees us from our sins by his blood. Look at this. Chapter 7, verses 13 through 15. This is amazing. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now look at this. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, does that jar you? What? You can't wash something in blood and make it white. There's nobody's blood who can make dirty clothing white. Except one. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the only one. When we realize we cannot make ourselves clean enough for God, we cannot make ourselves pure enough for God, and we choose instead to trust in Jesus and His bloody death for us and His resurrection, all of our guilt and our guard, He takes it away. He takes it away. 1 John 1, 9. 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, in other words, if we live in denial, we say, oh, no, good, I'm good. I'm good. No sin here. I mean, nothing big. I mean, I'm not perfect, but nobody is. And hey, I'm better than most. <laughs> we deceive ourselves. If we ever think, you know, I'm just not bad enough to go to hell, we deceive ourselves. Absolute deception. You're lying to yourself if you think that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not, not in us. But if we confess our sin, admit it, agree with God that I'm a sinner, He, Jesus, is faithful and just. Why is it just of Him to forgive our sins? Because He died for them. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, look at this, cleanse us from... Some unrighteousness. Oh, no? Oh, cleanse us from much unrighteousness. That's right, much. Oh, wait, no? Cleanse us from most unrighteousness. Is this a glorious word or what? Three letters. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, my goodness. All of it. All of it. Jesus can do that for you. If you haven't yet said yes to him and said, yeah, okay, I deserve hell, but you died and rose again for me and you can make me spotless and I'm tired of denying my sin, I'm tired of pretending, 
Lord, do it for me. He'll do it. He'll do it. So what it all comes down to is this. Are we going to be content with our reputation that we can build by our own efforts and then be regarded as dead by Jesus? Or will we choose to be awake? To be serious about Jesus, to trust him to make us alive, trust him and do what he wants us to do, no matter what it does to our reputation, no matter what our traditions and preferences and memories are. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark, how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. If you have not yet put your trust in Christ, crowned him as king of your life, you get off the throne and say, take it, Lord, and wash me clean. You could do that today. Just ask him. If you want to talk about it afterwards, I'd love to talk to you about it. Talk to the person you came with. Talk to somebody you know who knows him, not just by reputation, but they really do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I don't want to be asleep. I don't want to be dead. And I don't want this church to be asleep or dead. Lord, we don't want to rest on a reputation. I have no idea what reputation we have. But Lord, I, just, I want it to be real for me. I want it to be real for every person in this room. I want us to be alive to you. And Lord Jesus, you're the only one that can make that happen. So we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and give us life. Help us remember and repent. and crown you our Lord and Savior forever. Amen.